Is Gender an Emergent Order? Today I speak with Lauren Hall. Welcome to the Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Alchidiak, and today I'm speaking with Lauren Hall. Lauren Hall is a professor and associate dean of academic affairs at the Rochester Institute of Technology College of Liberal Arts. She's the author of The Medicalization of Birth and Death and Family and the Politics of Moderation. She was recently the guest editor of the journal Cosmos and Taxes in Issue on Gender and Spontaneous Order, and wrote the opening article for that issue, which we'll be discussing today. So Lauren, our question today is, is gender an emergent order? Well, as I've argued, yes. <laughs> so we can end the podcast right there. Uh, Excellent. <laughs> yeah. So um, the argument that I make in that piece and, and what I really liked about this uh, this issue in general is that because there isn't a lot on this, it actually gave uh, me and the other contributors, a kind of sandbox to play with some of these ideas in a way that I think is, um, is often, you know, when there's a, when there's an existing literature that you have to contend with, it kind of narrows your focus. But here we were able to play with some really big ideas. So I would argue that gender absolutely is a spontaneous order. Um, it's a, it's a uh, complex adaptive system and it, it is a complex adaptive system because it's actually the combination of two separate complex adaptive systems. Uh, we have the biological components of gender um, and sex. And so that comes from the sort of basic reproductive capacities of human beings and the way that males and females sort of interact with each other in this really basic kind of reproductive sense. But then that emergent order, and the reason, and I can talk more about how that, the biology of it is an emergent order, right? It comes from this long emergent order of evolutionary um, biology. But then that that emergent order combines with and interacts with this additional very complicated um, emergent order of human culture. Uh, and it's not just human culture, it's human economics, it's human social orders, it's human political orders, human legal orders. And so by the time you combine these two really complicated, emergent, complex adaptive systems, um, there's this really just amazing interaction between the two. And so I argue in, in this particular piece that we, we actually don't give gender enough credit for the complexity that it, um, that it displays um, and the way it fits really well into the emergent order tradition that a lot of uh, liberals like to think about. Um, so I want to start things off by better understanding how you define emergent order, created order, and imposed order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, an emergent order is typically understood to be a, a bottom-up system where individuals are reacting to very specific local phenomenon or local kind of um, inputs. And uh, and the broad definition of an emergent order, I should have a better one at this point in my career, but the, the broad definition of an emergent order is that you cannot predict the outcome with any kind of certainty. So um, we talk about uh, rule of law in some capacity as being an emergent order. Uh, markets, prices are the classic example of an emergent order um, where lots of individuals make decisions about the specific uh, you know, products that they buy, and that influences the price in a way that nobody can really predict. And so gender is very much a, an emergent order for that kind of reason, and we can talk more about that. So, so that's the definition of an emergent order. It's very bottom-up. It's very individual-focused, and individuals making all these all these decisions together um, create this broad order that nobody predicted um, and nobody can really control. 
the other two types of orders, uh, the, the other the one that, um, and the name of the journal actually is helpful here because we have the Hayek described these two orders as cosmos and taxes. And so cosmos is the emergent order tradition and taxes is the imposed order. And so an imposed order is just top down. It's somebody saying, you know, here's this thing that we do. Um, you are going to do X, Y, and Z. And so, um, administrative law is usually, although, I mean, it it gets a little bit slippery because there's actually a lot of elements of even, most kinds of imposed order that have an emergent um, element to them. But uh, in an imposed order, it's it's essentially top down. So um, I tell you what to do, and then you do it. Um, and then there's there's other kinds of, uh, of of orders that folks have have talked about. Um, and what was the third one you mentioned? I should know this because I used it in my article. Uh, it was emergent order, created order, and imposed order. Oh, okay. Um, so the the created order. I'm trying to think of how I used that. Um, the there are these, uh, and actually, I'm trying to remember the term that Fabio Rojas uses because he actually has another nice way of thinking about this, which is um, a sort of different understanding of the way that uh, people can create orders via activism. So it's essentially a kind of middle ground between an imposed order, which comes just from the top down, doesn't have anything to do with the way that people are actually interacting or behaving on the ground, um, and then a and then a true emergent order. But you can you do have control over the kind of order that that exists, um, particularly in smaller communities. And so, a created order would be something like a kind of activist movement that tries to create a certain kind of order out of the order that exists. Um, and then, and so, it's to a certain degree, it's sort of a spectrum, right? The a true emergent order, the most the most emergent kind of order, is just totally spontaneous. There's no human interaction at all, or, or no human sort of guidance at all, um, and those are relatively rare because humans always make decisions about their political, social, and economic contexts. But in the same way, a truly imposed order where you have a single top-down kind of control that's also very rare. So I think most human orders are somewhere in the middle, but they they vary based on you know sort of how emergent they are and how much imposition there is. And of course, both sets of orders interact, which is why it gets even more complicated. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, you, you did touch on it a little bit already, but I want to dig into it a little more. Uh, can you talk a bit about how you describe in the in- introduction of your paper how gender isn't necessarily only connected to reproduction? Yeah. So um, I talk a little bit about, and, and I think a, a couple of the authors play with this even more deeply, but um, it is certainly true that the that gender begins primarily as a as a reproductive um, kind of signal, right? So um, even things like sexual dimorphism, which is the differences between men and women, right? Males on average tend to be slightly larger, slightly taller. Uh, they have larger upper body mass. Um, those are just biological differences that um, occurred as a result of our evolutionary history. They have a lot to do with human mating patterns, um, and so those are those are sort of reproductive realities, but they're reflected in this broader kind of social and environmental context. Um, so. There's so even at that very beginning, right? Humans and all primates, and actually I would say all mammals, right, use gender as a kind of signal. So the the reproductive reality is is absolutely true, right? So that there's that baseline of like you have to the species obviously you know individuals have to mate in order to continue onward, um, 
But as part of that mating process, you have signals. And so gender itself becomes this signal that then itself gets manipulated and changed and tweaked by the economic and political and social environment in which people find each other and find themselves. And so even at the most basic level, right, um, a lot of people like to talk about um, sort of sex as though it's just sort of purely biological. But if you look at any kind of primate group, right, there's an enormous amount of gender signaling that happens, right? There's an enormous amount of behavioral uh, sort of um, baggage that comes along even with the act of who am I going to mate with? How am I going to get that that individual to decide to mate with me? Right? What kinds of behaviors am I going to engage in to get that uh, to get that uh, individual over here? Um, so even at that very basic reproduction reproductive level, it's still socially embedded, it's still politically embedded, and it's still um, and it's still economically embedded. And that doesn't mean it's relative, though. And that's where I think people get confused. I think a lot of sort of conservatives would say, oh, you're just slipping into sort of relativism. And that's not that's not what I'm arguing. And I don't think that's what most evolutionary theorists would argue either. Um, it just means that it's it's heavily impacted by the environment in which individuals of a, of a specific species find themselves. Yeah, and I was I was really interested in your description of feminist primatology and the works of Sarah Blaffer Hardy, a topic and scholar I had never heard about before. <laughs> so I was uh, really interested in that. Um, and if you want to talk more about who she was and the main takeaways you had from her work, because I know you, you started talking about it a little bit in your last answer, um, and in particular, her study of female infanticide showed showing that reproductive decisions are never made in isolation. I thought that was very interesting. And I'm wondering um, if you want to talk about that more and why it matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. So I love, uh, Herdy's work is fantastic. It's spelled H-R-D-Y for those of you who um, are looking for her work. She has, um, I think, two really, she has a lot of different publications, but two of my favorites are Mother Nature, um, Mother's Infants and Natural Selection, where she talks about infanticide in more detail. And then another fantastic work that I actually use in my women in politics class is called The Woman That Never Evolved. And in that book, she talks about, um, she looks at female primates from across a range of different species. And she she sort of explodes the, the matriarchal myth, the idea that we ever had a sort of matriarchal society where, you know, women were in charge. But she also explodes a lot of the sort of patriarchal myths on the other side. And, and so what she what she comes down on, and, and it's interesting because she's not, she wouldn't, I don't think, have recognized herself as I certainly don't think she would have recognized herself as a classical liberal, and she certainly wouldn't have, uh, I mean, she would have considered herself, I think, probably a progressive liberal, but she's absolutely smack in the emergent order tradition, because really what she's focusing on is the way in which different species and, and gender itself and, and sort of sex and gender as a kind of uh, signal um, is itself an adaptive mechanism. And so it's it's the way in which various kinds of individuals make decisions about things that in fact that impact other individuals. And so you have this really complicated kind of um, infrastructure that's built on top of these individual decisions. So um, the she talks about infanticide, and I really like this example because it it does such a good job of demonstrating how both the both the right and the left are wrong about gender. So the right typically makes the argument that um, that sex and gender are biological, that you can't you know you can't change them, for example, um, and that uh, anything that sort of veers away from the 
sort of gender norms that you would expect from a kind of uh, you know male dominant um, species is is sort of you know I don't know some sort of um, uh, deviation from the norm. On the flip side, though, progressives, I think, and and what we in the U.S. call liberals, but sort of liberal progressives, their response to that was, well, no, 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 gender and sex are totally relative, right? There's no, any, you can do anything with sex or gender that you want, right? The world is wide open. And so you get these arguments for, you know, free love and these utopian kinds of ways of trying to organize the world. And I think one of the things I like about Hardy's work is that without referencing any of those political debates sort of explicitly, she just explodes both of them. So the the reality, of course, that we find in the real world um, is that gender is is very malleable, but there are still basic patterns that we see over and over again across human societies. So uh, do we live in a generally kind of patriarchal species? Yes, that is that is generally how humans uh, how humans interact with each other. Does that mean though that the that females are submissive naturally in some kind of way? Of course not, because even in the patriarchal um, species, uh, the other patriarchal species that we see in the primate world, um, females have an enormous amount of agency, and so that's a big part of Herdy's work. And, and I think what spurred her research in the first place was when she was doing research in the field on primates, she noticed that these male primatologists would go out and they would look at male primates and they would say, look at all this agency that these males have. And then they wouldn't look at the female primates at all. And they came back with these stories from the fields, like, well, all the female primates are just sitting around waiting for the males to do stuff, right? So they're just submissive and they're just kind of accepting of whatever the males decide to do. And so uh, Herdy and a couple other uh, female primatologists, you know, they went out into the field and they said, wait a second, I'm going to start actually paying attention to what female primates do. And what they found is that there's an enormous amount of agency that female primates use um, in terms of trickery, in terms of banding together, in terms of just social norms and social expectations uh, that actually prevent an enormous amount of abuse of male power. Uh, as well as a lot of, uh, you know, ways in which females get their way, um, including by keeping weaker alpha males in power for longer than you would expect, given sort of the other competition that's out there. So um, the example that you asked about, which is the specific example of infanticide that she brings up, um, again, one of the reasons I like that, just to go back to this sort of... it. it it explodes both the right and the left, right? So the right would have this uh, this sort of expectation that um, if it is the case that uh, that women are sort of um, evolved to care for children, right? You should never have, you know, female and maternal infanticide should be very, very rare. And what Hurdy finds is that it's actually not rare, and it's particularly not rare in humans. Um, it actually is rare in other primates. And so one of the one of the arguments that she makes for why this has shifted is that once we shifted out of our uh, sort of earlier hunter-gatherer society where we had much longer spacing between infants to an agricultural society where there was a plethora of food, we had uh, closer contact, women were getting sort of less physical labor in, in, um, in a lot of senses. And so ovulation was not spread out as much. Now, all of a sudden, you have children that are coming at a very rapid clip. And now, because of this economic shift, right, this economic and environmental shift, female human primates have to make choices that other female primates have not typically had to have. 
and, or not had to make. And so the, the, the decisions that human female primates make um, end up being very difficult decisions, right? Do I invest in this child, right? If I'm pregnant right now, do I invest in this pregnancy, even if it puts my existing children at risk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if your partner dies, your attitude toward that child, the child that's coming is going to be very, very different than if you have a partner who is who is there and able to support you when you're, you and your child are the most vulnerable. And so Hurdy's point is that the, the sort of spontaneous order of the economic and social world impacted the spontaneous order of human reproduction and changed the way that human mothers had to think about the concept of infanticide. And this obviously relates to the abortion debate, but she's actually not even looking at abortion per se. She's looking at the situations in which mothers intentionally kill or abandon abandon existing children. And we find that that starting again from the agricultural era onward through the Industrial Revolution um, has been very common in human societies. So it does translate into an economic logic, all of this, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 There's an enormous amount of crossover. So can you walk us through how the different waves of feminism view emergent and imposed gender orders? Yeah, so this is kind of a first stab. Um, I, I would I would welcome sort of more feedback. Um, you know, I think first wave feminists, who we, we typically think of as the um, sort of uh, the Susan B. Anthony folks, right? They, they focus primarily on imposed orders, the legal restrictions that women faced that prevented them from uh, from, for example, owning property or voting. And so by focusing really narrowly on these, these imposed orders, they started to be able to kind of shift around and, and move some of these legal restrictions out of the way. But even at the time, now there are some, rest- there are some um, exceptions to this. So um, I talk about a couple of them in the piece very briefly. Um, but Antoinette Brown Blackwell, for example, um, there, you know, there are some women from this uh, first wave that, that do start pushing back on some of the social orders too. But by and large, when we think about the first wave feminists, we're often thinking about them as attacking the, the existing imposed orders like the right to own property, like the right to vote. Um, Second wave feminists, the way that I think about it is sort of expanding outward into the social world. So really thinking about the social order, the economic restrictions that women were under, right? The fact that women couldn't apply apply for certain kinds of jobs, the way that women were sort of expected to stay home as soon as they got married. And that's a different kind of social order that you're pushing back on, right? That's one that's a sort of that's pushing back on this emergent order that itself comes from different kinds of interactions of different kinds of other emergent orders. So that work is harder because you're not just saying here's this law that's bad because women should be able to own property. Here you're saying this entire system that you've built up, right? The entire system of like male employment or male licensure, right? Um, of physicians or lawyers or whatever. Um, Right, we need to actually tear that down in some fundamental way. So when we think about second wave feminists, um, I mean, I think about people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg as being some of the folks who really got in there. And of course, she did this via the legal system, but she was really interested in attacking um, not necessarily specific laws, but the way in which specific laws upheld this broader social and, and political order. Um, and then we get into third wave feminism and third wave feminism is where you get sort of an interesting combination of, um, 
you know, radical feminists on the one hand, but you also get this concept of intersectionality, uh, which is mm-hmm. really, really interesting from an evolutionary perspective. So I think Sarah Blaffer Hurdy would have a lot to say about intersectionality in the sense that there's absolutely different ways in which social status impacts and influences the way that your gender presentation and your gender norms um, are seen in a society. And so um, I think that, you know, a lot of her work on primates actually really supports the sort of third wave intersectional um, hypothesis, which I think is kind of fascinating because a lot of third wave feminists hate uh, evolutionary theory. And so there's some interesting kind of paradoxes there. Um, But I think when in third wave feminism, you, you start to really see the the attempt to tear down the biological um, foundation of gender. And so I think in more in the, in the third wave, you see more of the radical feminists who say all gender presentation is ultimately a choice, right? And we can choose to do something completely differently. And so that's partly why a lot of third wave feminists have a kind of antagonism toward the biological spontaneous order that impacts gender because they don't like the fact that it does create certain kinds of patterns that are going to be really difficult to get rid of um, and maybe impossible to get rid of at some, at some level. Um, So I think you do a great job of outlining why feminism is so diverse in your paper and how different areas of study deal with reproduction and gender roles. Can you talk about, about, about that now, like demographers, sociologists, economists, legal theory, um, critical legal thinkers to be more specific? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, there's, and and again, I think part of the reason that feminism and, and again, we tend to think about feminism as these waves, but the waves have always kind of been, they're all there at the same time, but it really just depends on who you're talking to. Right. Mm -hmm. So different kinds of, um, different kinds of people with different disciplinary backgrounds are going to focus on different kinds of things. Um, so we mentioned demographers, for example. So there's a really interesting, um, uh, it's called bare branches. Um, and it's a, it was an article and then it became a book that looks at the sex ratio imbalance. And so what they predict and what they find in at least some areas, um, is that when you have too few females, um, you have what these demographic, uh, imbalances actually create some really, really serious and long-term impacts, uh, that are bad for societies. And they're particularly looking at, for example, China, right? So like what's going to happen, we have this huge dearth of females in part because the one child policy incentivized, uh, the abortion and infanticide of, of, uh, females. And so now you have this generation of males who are growing up, who are not going to have access to females to, uh, to mate with. And so a couple things that we see coming from that, now, you would think that that would actually create higher status for females, right? If there's fewer of them, they should be able to call the shots. That's not actually what happens. What actually happens is that females become a commodity. And so you have increased uh, increased um, incidences of kidnapping, um, and you actually have increased incidences of human trafficking as males go across the border to, to pull women from other, um, from other countries. So I think a demographer is going to look at some of the problems associated with, for example, sex ratios differently than, say, an economist would. Um, and I think one of the things that we often miss, um, especially in the sort of like hysteria over critical race theory, um, is that people like Crenshaw, I think made a really important point. And if you look at Kimberly Crenshaw's original, um, legal article, um, that sort of led the way for critical race theory, which is really a legal doctrine, um, 
she's just noticing something really basic that I think all emergent order thinkers should sort of accept on its face, which is that when different emergent orders overlap, it creates different kinds of intersexual, uh, intersectional patterns of vulnerability and harm. So the example that she looks is the way that rape laws, for example, um, in the South were interpreted differently, whether you were white or whether you were black. And that in fact, the kind of white, that the focus on protecting white women against sexual assault could actually create deep, deep harm um, for example, resulting in lynching of black men, right? So there's this kind of way in which our gendered attitudes towards certain kinds of groups and the attitude that those gendered roles and gendered expectations play in the broader social structure where you have some groups that have much higher social status and much greater legal protection than others, of course, gender is going to play into that. Um, and so I think that there's some really interesting work that emergent order thinkers can do in playing with, for example, this notion of intersectionality and really looking at, well, when we talk about intersectionality, what do we mean? Well, you know, the critical race theorists talk about it in terms of sort of understanding the intersectional ways in which different kinds of um, women can actually come together and understand how they don't all share the same experiences, right? The sort of Betty Friedan, the upper middle class housewife, is a very different kind of experience than a you know lower uh, lower income Latina immigrant, right? And so the goal of intersectionality was to try to bring those experiences together. What I think has happened that I think is really unfortunate is that now sort of you get different identities getting sort of pitted against each other, which is not what the ultimate goal of that was. But from an emergent order tradition, I think it's really neat to see how we can start sort of thinking about that intersectionality as what are the overlapping emergent orders that are contributing to these different kinds of vulnerability, right? So you have, for example, um, to take uh, the Latina example, like a, a recent immigrant She's not only dealing with uh, various kinds of norms, you know, gender norms in her own culture, but those are interacting with gender norms in the culture that she's currently in now. But she also has to reckon with the reality of the imposed order of very arbitrary immigration laws and how those are affecting the way her gender is understood when it comes to things like access to education. And so I think we can actually do some really interesting analyses if we start thinking about gender more as a kind of overlapping of different kinds of emergent orders that interact in not just emergent orders, but imposed orders that interact in unpredictable ways. And I think that's a great place to take a break. After we get back, uh, I'd love to go into all the articles that you chose for this uh, edition of Cosmos and Texas and um and we'll talk a little bit more about that and how it, they all connect together. Um, and I'll, we'll see you guys after the break. The Curious Task is a podcast by the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. Special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Danny Leroy, Vincent Geloso, and Joe Aragona. Remember to follow us on Facebook and X and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Lauren Hall. Now, I want to start talking about the different articles you chose to include in the special edition of Texas and Cosmos. Oh, Cosmos and Texas. I just said that the wrong way around. Uh, but first, can you tell me how this issue came about in the first place and what you're hoping to accomplish with it? 
Yeah. So this was a itself a kind of emergent order. We were talking on, uh, well, so somebody had a Facebook post. I don't even think it was my Facebook post, but um, a couple of us just started talking about how we we should, there needed to be more work in this area is, is mm-hmm. kind of how the conversation started. Um, and then it was actually Jason Kuznicki, who's, um, whose piece ends the volume, uh, who suggested that maybe we, we put together some sort of special edition in some way. Uh, and I think he was at, at Cato at the time. And so we were kind of thinking about it in terms of, um, a kind of antidote to this binary. Um, and this kind of, this enters into a lot of the current work that I'm, that I'm doing on sort of political moderation, broadly speaking. But, um, you know, I think you have this gender binary of, you know, it's either biological or it's a social construct and never the two shall meet. But that's just, I mean, that's just obviously not how it works. And that's not how any of us really understand our own sort of gender identities. And so, um, so from that Facebook group, uh, I think we kind of thrashed around for a while. We, uh, we had some offline conversations. Um, and then we, uh, it turned out that there was some funding via the Templeton Foundation to put together a, a, to support a special issue and a workshop on, um, on this topic. So we put out a broad call and we got what I think is just a really fantastic collection of articles, um, a really diverse group with really diverse Mm -hmm. kinds of interests. And, um, so I was, I was really thrilled in the way that it, that it came out. And we had the fortune because of that support from the Templeton foundation and the Institute for humane studies that we were able to do a, a full weekend workshop on the volume. And so that actually really helped us see you know, where are there similarities in our arguments? Where are there differences in our arguments? And, and it helped us kind of tighten up where, what we were, um, what the final issue was going to look like. But, but I was really, really pleased in just how um, it really does feel like a kind of sandbox for ideas. There's lots of neat mm-hmm. stuff going on. Yeah. And uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to have some of these authors on the podcast to talk to them about their specific articles uh, in the coming weeks. But I do want to give listeners a quick 101 on what they're talking about and why you think their article is important to the greater study of gender and emergent order. And first off, we've got Akiva Malame and Michaela Novak's article on gender as a discovery process. And that focuses on the market and gender entrepreneurship. Uh, Why do you think this was an important discussion to have? Yeah, I really like this one. Um, and, and again, I think a lot of what I really like about this issue is the way that it explodes the sort of the ideological expectations that people have about gender in in one direction or another. So a lot of the time I really, you know, I see that when, um, and I see this a lot when I talk to feminists um, uh, or people who self-identify as feminists, um, that there's this sort of understanding that markets are bad. Right. So mm-hmm. if you're a feminist, you you have to hate markets because markets are associated with neoliberalism or conservatism or what have you. And so what I really like about um, about Akiva and Michaela's paper is the way that they emphasize how markets can actually be liberatory. Right. They actually allow you to sort of work through um they allow people options and they allow people options, particularly in the way in which people discover gender, both individually, but also in groups. Um, so I loved the use of their term gender entrepreneurship and the way that sort of markets facilitate gender discovery. So they make it easier for people themselves to discover sort of who they are as an individual, but then they also make it easier for those people to find each other. Right. I mean, if you think about how isolating it would have been to be 
you know, a gay kid in like rural, you know, Australia or something in the 1970s. Um, and now, even if you are a gay kid in rural Australia in the 19, you know, well, in the 2000s, you can actually reach out to people online. And so you, you actually don't, you're not like the isolation has really um, dropped dramatically. So a lot of the benefits of markets, I think, are really unsung. And, and but I really love this idea of sort of gender entrepreneurship. And the, the other cool thing that comes out of their paper um, is the way in which those sort of markets and this concept of gender entrepreneurship really creates new things. It drives mm-hmm. gender innovation. It drives people experimenting, uh, coming up with different styles of dress, different styles of gender expression. Um, and so I thought that was really, uh, really neat. So next we've got Nathan Goodman's article, Commerce, Spontaneous Order, and Gender Freedom Movements. Um, and that takes it to the next level and talks about how those markets lead to broader social movements. Uh, why is that important for the discussion that you're having? Yeah, I thought Nathan's paper uh, sort of moved really nicely from um, from Michaela and Akiva's uh, in the sense that he, he sort of takes their broader argument. Um, and a lot of this was not intentional. It was just neat to sort of see how these pieces ended up coming together. But part of what Nathan argues in, in his piece um, is that different kinds of social movements were able to take advantage of even totally self-interested actors. So I think there's a kind of idealism in a lot of activism, which is that like, you have to agree with us on every single thing if you're mm-hmm. going to be an ally. And one of the things that Nathan's article sort of uh, points out is we actually have lots of examples of people furthering the cause of social justice, of gender justice, um, just by being self-interested market players. So the example that he uses is um, the Stonewall. Uh, uh, he uses a couple examples. I won't... I won't uh, uh, spoil the entire article for those who are interested. But the one example that he uses is um, the experience, for example, of um, LGBTQ folks around the Stonewall um, uh, period and the way in which um, different kinds of gay clubs were able to stay, well, they were able to come into existence um, in large part because the the mafia was willing to provide them a basic level of protection um, in exchange for market share. Right. So the mafia was like, here's this group of people that no one in the in the market is willing to um, service. Uh, We'll service them. Right. To make a profit. Um, And because the mafia is kind of scary and has its own internal protection mechanism, you don't have to rely on the police who, of course, if you're an LGBTQ person in, you know, 1970s in San Francisco, you're not going to trust the police or 1960s, 1970s. So it actually gave them a measure of protection. Now, are we saying that the mafia are great people? Of course not, right? But I think uh, Nathan's overall point is that you don't have to rely on people having exactly the same, you know, ideological or or um, other kinds of goals as you to still further your your goals as um, as, for example, an activist. Mm-hmm. Um, so next we've got Sarah Squire and Jamie Lemke's paper titled Her Own Property, Lizzie's Diamonds and Rosalie's Fortune, which really melds literature and economics in a way that helps explain the emergence of things like property rights uh, and talks about that controversial term globalization and mm-hmm. how it affects women. Uh, why do you think this was an important discussion to have in this issue? Yeah, I like this one for, for two reasons. Um, one is that I think both, uh, both Sarah and Jamie have done such a nice job um, at demonstrating the relevance of literature for economic analysis. So you can go back to these older novels, um, in this case, The Shuttle and The Eustace Diamonds, and you can 
you can start seeing how these novels, you know, they're not, they're not a fully reliable, uh, you know, um, portrait of the economic situation at the time, right? All authors have certain kinds of biases, um, but they do show you interesting patterns that emerge and they show you patterns that economists very often don't have access to because they're really looking at aggregate level data. Whereas what a novelist from that particular time can point out is these are the ways that these specific kinds of political or economic uh, impacts, you know, these are the kinds of ways that people were thinking about them. Um, so one of the things that's really neat in that one is the way that they're looking at how women's legal access and legal standing, um, creates these interesting kinds of conflict. Um, so the legal access and legal standing are themselves dependent on existing emergent orders. And so one of the things that's, that's neat about the, um, in particular the shuttle, but is the way that American and, um, British gender norms, conflict. And so you have this this period where American millionaires are sending their daughters over to uh to marry impoverished um you know earls or whatever and um and and thinking that this would be a sort of market transaction, right? Like I'm giving you my millions and you're going to give my daughter this title. But it's not that simple because there's this huge social and political and economic weight behind the British aristocracy that the, that the American sort of parents didn't foresee. Uh, and so looking at the way that legal norms and legal expectations interact with social norms, um, but also the way that, that as these norms and expectations change, you get conflict and you get friction. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's an area that I think the conservatives, the sort of conservative attitude toward gender, they're not wrong in one important sense, which is that when gender norms change really rapidly, you do get conflict, you do get friction. Um, And that's because people no longer quite know, because gender is such a central part of how we signal to other people. Um, When gender is sort of way up in the air, it does, I think, create some friction in people's brains. It makes it harder for them to understand the social and political world. So I think they do a really nice job of laying that out via via literature. Hmm. Uh, next is one that I was, uh, was kind of surprised by in the, in the article, in the journal. I, I really didn't know much about this before reading it. The impartial Wally, a Smithian analysis of Wabash, Wabash College's Gentleman's Rule by Nicholas A. Snow, it's a mouthful, sorry, (laughs) allows us to delve into a world many of us might never be privy to, including myself, and that's male academic groups and something they might call a gentleman's rule that helps guide them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like this piece. Um, I had the the privilege of visiting Wabash to give a talk for their their PPE lecture series, which was really neat. Um, And it's a small all-male. It's one of the last two all-male colleges in the United States. Um, I think it has about 900 undergraduate students. And and what I think uh, Nick does so nicely in this piece, you know, he's an economist, but he's coming at it from a Smithian perspective. And he's, he's saying, let's see how this very, I mean, it's homogenous from a gender perspective, but it's not homogenous economically, politically, or, or, um, ethnically, racially. So, you know, Wabash has an interesting kind of, there's a level at which the student population is homogenous from the gender perspective, but it's not homogenous in a lot of other ways. But one of the things that ties all of the students together is this, this gentleman's rule, which is it's really simple and it's really vague. And it just says like, you should behave at all times as a gentleman. <laughs> and so this itself has these really interesting gendered implications, right? Because what is a gentleman, right? 
Um, and this goes all the way back again to sort of the British, uh, the sort of British understanding of a gentleman as having both rights and responsibilities, having duties, right? So it has this, it's a, it's a normatively loaded kind of phrase. Um, but one of the things that Nick argues is that this is very much a, a Smithian, right? Adam Smith would recognize why this rule works, which is that even though it's tacit and even though it's pretty vague, um, students, they, they can identify ungentlemanly behavior, right? And then they can self-enforce. Whereas if you had this huge code of conduct, right, an imposed order. So uh, so I think that's actually part of what, what Nick is pointing out is that the gentleman's rule creates a kind of spontaneous order among students. Whereas if you had an imposed order, which was like a student code of hand, uh, you know, code of conduct that's 15 pages long, um, you actually would probably get lower rates of, um, you know, of, a behavior alignment and, and a lot more confusion. Uh, whereas in this, mm-hmm. you have this really simple tacit rule that works really well in that particular context. Yeah. And next, the article, Not Planned by Us, Motive and Meaning Among Upper Tail Birth Rate Women by Catherine R. Pakaluk. Now, upper tail reproduction refers to those with five or more children, uh, which is something that I learned reading this. I would say a group of women that are, I would say that these, this is a group of women that are misunderstood and often immediately judged. And, and I wonder how does that fit into emergent order? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other, you know, this is another good example of one that, um, just like the, the Michaela and, um, and a keep a piece, I think it explodes a lot of our sort of ideological assumptions. Um, so when a lot of, for example, liberal progressives think about women who have five or more children, right? The assumption is, they're victims of the patriarchy, right? They don't understand their own their own self interest, right? Um, and one of the things that Catherine and 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 she, so she's an economist, but she actually gets into she does really deep qualitative work with this book. Uh, well, so this is actually this piece is an extension um, of a book that she's that just got published, I think, um, or will be shortly published. Um, but one of the things that's nice about that qualitative research is that she gets to actually sit down and spend you know, hours interviewing these women and finding out sort of what motivates them. And what they themselves discuss is the way that the process of discernment about whether to have a child or not have a child, whether to add to the family or not have the family, is itself a kind of emergent order. And so it's this, it's this interaction between um, almost all of these women are religious, um, but not all of them. So there, there are, I think, a couple atheists in her, um, in her sample. Um, but in either case, right, they're, they're sort of doing this constant, this iterative uh, sort of an interactive process between thinking about their own goals, thinking about their family goals, and thinking about um, their partner's goals. And as they put those pieces together, right, the pieces move, the more you add children to the mix, the more those children grow. And over time, you have this really interesting emergent order that is in this case, a family. But then that itself feeds back into these women's identities and changes how they think about themselves. And so Mm -hmm. I think this explodes not only the sort of, um, again, the sort of uh, stigma that I think modern uh, society has toward women who have a lot of children, um, but it also sort of unravels this idea that like your gender identity or your like reproductive identity is static and that you just, you are this thing. And in reality, you're always interacting with your environment, you're interacting with your family, you're interacting with the stage of life that you're at. And so it's a dynamic process. Um, it's a complex adaptive system in a certain way. Uh, and so those decisions change over time. 
And finally, the article Gender as Essence and as Economic Choice by Jason Kuznicki, who you mentioned er earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's an author I really admire, uh, who in this article rejects gender essentialism and argues we must be more comfortable with gender flexibility and gender changes, something he sees as inevitable. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I I really like Jason's argument um, because I think it points to something really important, which is that every time we try to pinpoint a specific characteristic that is gender, right? It's such a moving target that we end up being wrong like in two or three years. Um, And so it used to be, people used to say, well, gender is hormonal, right? Well, now you can adjust people's hormones, right? To sort of change their gender presentation. So then people said, well, now it's chromosomal, right? So it's just whether you have an XY chromosome or an XX chromosome. Well, now we know that there's lots of different chromosomal uh, variability. Um, So some people have uh, uh, an XO, some people have an extra Y, right? There's all sorts of chromosomal sort of variation there. But also we're moving toward technologically a point where we actually may be able to insert chromosomes into people's uh, into people's genomes. Um, and that's actually not science fiction. We're already doing things like that to a certain degree with CRISPR and other kinds of technologies. So what Jason's pointing out is a lot of the our, our attachment to gender essentialism is causing a lot of harm. It's preventing us from seeing the way in which gender can be flexible. And it's also preventing us from preparing what for what is probably going to happen in the future, which is as we get better and better at these various kinds of technological changes, we will start being able to change genetically people's gender. And not just in a sort of like, I feel like I'm in a different body, so I'm going to switch over to that body you could actually switch back, right? So he he talks about the potential, for example, to maybe you sort of grow a womb temporarily because you want to experience pregnancy as a male, right? You have the child and then you, you know, and then you get rid of the womb, right? I mean, like a lot of these changes probably are not going to be static. They'll be kind of temporary changes. So he thinks about gender as a kind of flip, a switch that we can flip on and off. Now, does that mean that there aren't enormous social, political, and other kinds of implications that need to be sort of hashed out at some point? Of course not. But I think part of his his argument is that by, by clinging to this idea that gender is an essence, that we can point to a single characteristic that determines someone's gender, we're actually ignoring the way in which people will actually use and are already using gender in really flexible kinds of fluid ways. Um, and the more we cling to this kind of false belief in essentialism, it's going to it's gonna hurt more when reality sets in. So even though all these articles seem different, I think they all work together once you read them all as a group. Um, there are a lot of themes that you've identified that are important throughout the issue. Um, and you asked all the authors to sort of end with questions. So I do hope that people take you up on that idea of, of continuing that research. And if for anybody who's interested in, in reading these articles that you just discussed, they are available online and you can go and read them. Uh, we'll have a link to that in our show notes. So uh, Lauren, we've talked about a lot. Let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether gender is an emergent order? Well, I hope people are convinced at least to some degree that, that, um, Gender and gender 
sort of as a signal, right? So first of all, I, I hope people see that there's this really interesting interaction between the, the sort of economic logic and the evolutionary logic um, in, in the way that uh, both impact gender. But I also hope that people see gender as an adaptation. So gender expression, um, gender identity are all sort of adaptations to people's specific places in the world, the way that their particular identity is overlapping with other kinds of emergent orders. Um, So I I hope that people, and, and part of the reason, I'm glad you mentioned the questions at the end of each chapter, part of what we were hoping is that this issue could serve as a springboard. We're certainly not hoping that everyone agrees with us. Um, and actually, us isn't even the right term because I think each of us have very different sort of think ways of thinking about gender. But I do hope that this issue can spur additional conversations uh, and give some some entrepreneurial graduate students some, some exciting uh, thoughts and ideas to play with because this is really an under an underserved area. So, so even though I think it's very clear that gender is an emergent order, um, I would just love to have more people engaging with the idea, even if they ultimately think I'm wrong. Thank you so much, Lauren Hall, for being with us today on the Curious Task. Uh, it was really great talking to you about this issue. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode is produced by Sabine Alchidiak and Eric Sagan. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Wilkenford. You should check out his music online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Sabine Alchidiak. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Bye-bye.